Turn to Acts 17. Now, we are so blessed to be in the book of Acts. What a time in our lives to be in the book of Acts. Uh, Listen, here's what we're learning, our mission. We've learned our mission, and uh, we're going to stick to it. And so we come together, of course, knowing as a church here at this little church and as the church at large, we know our mission. The Lord leaves no doubt as to what our mission is. And he says at the end of his Gospels that we're to go into all the world, starting around our homes, going a little farther out and a little farther out, and then all the way around the world, and to share the Gospel And to teach all the things that Jesus taught. And also to make disciples. We're not very good in America of making disciples. I think we're good at conversions. That's where we focus. But also disciples and baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So listen, we know our mission. Are you on mission? Am I on mission? And this is beautiful. We know the power by which we Go on this mission. I mean, you know, you ever had a boss who sort of comes in and it's your first day and he says, here's what you'll be doing, and sort of leaves the room and you're sitting thinking to yourself, well, uh uh-oh, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. But the Lord tells us and gives us the person and work of the Holy Spirit, not only to indwell us, but to come into our lives if we'll let him and overwhelm us with his love and his vision and his peace and his boldness and his stability and his security and his words and his wisdom. And he gives you all that so that you and I will stay on mission. Your life is not just about your 401k and your white picket fence and your airplane rides and your beautiful cars and your kingdom. No, It's about the Lord's kingdom. In fact, I mean, he taught that time between uh, his resurrection and his ascension, he taught this amazing month-long plus Bible study. It tells you right in the first chapter of Acts on his kingdom, on the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is about. It's not about your kingdom. It's about his kingdom. And in fact, as he's doing this, as... You're participating in the mission by his power. What a great deal. He works on you. You, your sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. And again, he leaves no doubt to what you and I are to be doing with our lives. I'm going to read it to you. You ready? Write it down. John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, Jesus says. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I don't really like Christianese. I mean, glorified, why were people talking, what what does glorified mean? Somebody tell me. I come into the family of God, I don't know all the words, the phrases. What does glorified mean? It means that the Lord, that the Father is made big in your life. Listen to this. By this my Father is made big glorified that you us we followers of christ bear much fruit what does the lord do in your life that makes you more christ-like oh and by the way keeps you on mission 
It, he makes you to bear fruit, all of them, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, and the goodness, the kindness, all the fruit. Now watch. It's making you more Christ-like, but it's still there, watch, for the mission. Why? Because your fruit is to be such low-hanging fruit, so abundant and big, that it glorifies the Lord and other people can come into your life, boom, pluck off a bit and be refreshed. But not by you and your strength and how kind and wonderful you are, but the love and the grace and the mercy that's flowing in and out of your life. It keeps us on mission. Even the fruit that glorifies the Lord that helps you in sanctification is for the mission. Isn't that amazing? It's all right there. Lest you think you get off track. Why am I here? What am I doing? Listen, Christians, we shouldn't be asking those questions just because we can read. You can read. I can read. The Holy Spirit knits them in our hearts. What are you to be doing? Glorifying God and participating in his mission. That's it. Whether he puts you in a law job, you're a stay-at-home dad, a stay-at-home mom, uh, I don't know, you work for waste management, you're a doctor, I don't know. You're an executive, you're a teacher, whatever. You're a business owner. You're to be participating in the mission that God is on with you. Well, you're on with him, I guess. Becoming more Christ-like, and as you become more Christ-like, more people are grabbing the fruit out of your life and saying, how do I get that? Wow. And that's the book of Acts. That's the book of Acts, folks. And that's what we've been studying. Now today, we're going to see one way, or several ways, I guess, how we do the mission. Are you with me? We know what the mission is. We know the power that's in the mission. It's the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we're learning as we go through the book of Acts, what do we do day by day? Now listen, if you think, well, oh my, Acts, oh, come on, 2,000 years ago, Acts, oh my goodness. Today you're going to see how, you ever heard this phrase? Here's another Christian phrase. Engage the culture. Oh, okay, great. How do I do that? Well, Paul's going to show us. So here we go. Turn over to Acts chapter 17. Now I'm going to have the, my, our, our crack staff, I love saying that, but anyway, our staff put up uh, this wonderful map that we found, and we're going to look at Paul's second missionary journey with Silas and some others now. And we are rounding for home. We've been to Philippi, and they just get kicked out of Philippi. And we're going to make our way through those two little cities, Amphipolis, Apollonia, I guess, and over uh, to Thessalonica, Berea, and then watch down here, we're going to go to Athens. That's where we're going to go today. And the wonderful part about this is, is remember, Paul wanted to go right on the map in his second missionary journey. When he got to the Asia part, Paul wanted to go right. And the Lord shut down uh, those opportunities and had him go left. And that led to the gospel spreading through Europe. I guess God knows what he's doing. You guys sometimes think, we all sometimes think that Paul is some superhuman, da-da-da-da-da-da. 
He's just like you and I, being guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. That's Paul. So that's where we're going. We're moving through from Philippi, and we get to this, uh, these verses in chapter 17. Read along with me. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, you all know this because we've been studying it. If there was a synagogue in the town in which Paul was directed to, he would always start there. And the reason why was because the Jewish people were prepared by the Old Testament scriptures for the Messiah. But there's another reason or many more reasons. But here's a biggie too. There were Gentile people who could come to the synagogue and they were called God-fearers. They liked the Jewish religion, and they studied it and looked at it. And so when Paul went to the synagogue, oftentimes it wasn't just Jewish people he was preaching to or getting to speak to. He was also speaking to Gentiles. And so he does that. And remember, the a gospel he writes goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. He always had a heart for his Jewish brethren. And it says he went to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. And it was a major city. It was like the capital of the big, there were, there were lots of big cities in Macedonia. See Macedonia up there. There were like the 10 to 12 big cities, but it was the big city of the big city. And that fascinates me because he sort of skipped over two cities. Interesting. They weren't as big. They were more podunk, we would say, or at least if you're from Ohio, like I'm from Ohio, that's what we'd say. And they were just littler which is interesting to me. Paul had a heart for everyone, but he had a heart for the cities. Why do you think he had a heart for the cities? Because he knew if he reached the people in the cities, the gospel would spread in a bigger way. So Paul went through Amphipolis, Apollonia, and went to Thessalonica. That interests me. And I think, too, listen, here we are. We're in little West Elizabeth. So let's talk about this fellowship. You hear what Beck said just now? We're going to reach out, and Xander too. Beck and Xander just talked about we're going to reach out and we're going to uh, do some things uh, for the community, but we're also going to bring the gospel and ask their families and kids to come here. And so that's wonderful in the small city. But, you know, too, as the leaders of the church pray about it and think about it, we have a heart for this big city called Pittsburgh. And we actually have been making preparations in some ways. And I won't go into those preparations. I don't even know how they would work themselves out. But we pray about the city. And there's one thing that you could pray about. And you could put on your list. How in the world could a little fellowship in West Elizabeth, Pennsylvania, impact a big city that's right up the road? How? Well, here's one way radio. And we've prayed about radio, and we've thought about radio, and uh, we've been down the radio road, and that's uh, sort of the Lord hasn't opened that up yet. So we're going to keep praying about it. We talked to some people at the pastor's conference last week, and there may be an opportunity to pipe some great biblical teaching into the city. So pray about that. Put that on your prayer list. I don't see anybody jotting it down. (laughs) It's a joke, folks. Relax, okay? (laughs) 
But jot it down. Put it on your prayer list. Put it in your prayer journals. How else could we reach out to the city of Pittsburgh as we continued to pray for her and the people there? And uh, what would that look like? And, you know, I note that in Thessalonica here, we're going to see he, Paul, verse 2, as his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So did he spend three weeks and establish a church in Thessalonica? Maybe, which is interesting. Instead of building a church like this and making mega churches, churches like this and multiplied them. You get what I'm saying? So maybe that's a way that we impact Pittsburgh, right? So pray about that. Stick that in your prayer journal. How would that be? Well, there's young men and uh, others here who are... You catch that because I'm not so young. But anyway, uh, that are praying about it and thinking about it and being in the school of ministry. And, and maybe someday some of these men will go and, uh, and make a fellowship right in the city. I don't know. I don't have any plans for that, but I hope that we multiply in that way. So the city, and Paul was interested in it. As his custom, he goes in. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, I want you to put on your thinking hat today. I don't want you to just know the information. See, because my heart, is, especially uh, if you ask Sarah Zimmer and the Bible College people, I think, I think this is one of the things Sarah Zimmer would say about the way I teach. I don't want to just give them the information. We can all learn the information. We could actually write it down and recite it. I want people, because I think it's biblical, that we're to be right dividers of the word, which means we have to be thinkers. Now, I want you to let that sit there for a minute. So thinking isn't Googling everything. Sorry, Gabe. He works for Google. But anyway, thinking isn't Googling everything. It's thinking through. It's getting involved in. It's wrestling with God's word. It's praying about it. I think our children are being brought up in a poor way in terms of the thinking world. We ought to be people, and by the way, not just the children, us old people too. So I don't want to be cranky about it. But I think we need to learn to be thinkers and right dividers of the word. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell you what college to go to. You got to think about these things. You got to have biblical principles and a strong and wonderful and sweet prayer life, and a Holy Spirit-filled-up life, sensitive to Him to determine where to go to college if the Lord chooses that, or what job to take. You ever wondered, why don't you just tell me? I wish you would just tell me. Well, He doesn't do that all the time. He gives you principles. He gives you principles... And then he says, keep coming to me in prayer and in the word, and we're going to work this out together. Look, look, wait a minute. Come reason. Look what Paul did right here. At Thessalonica, Paul reasoned with them. That means, in, the word there means dialogue. He didn't preach at Thessalonica so much. He sat down with them, and I think what he did personally is he did something like the Socratic method. It's not that I'm going to feed you information. We're going to go back and forth, dialogue, ask questions, uh, learn together. That was the Socratic method. 
And you're going to have some things that you feel strongly about, and I'm going to uh, have some things that I feel strongly about, but the teacher's not going to be the enemy. That's dialogue, folks. Now, you're all saying, oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Look at your Facebook posts. We're not dialoguing very much. Here's what we do. We tell you, do this or else. Well, there's a place for that. I get it. The word of God never comes back void. But Paul here dialogues with people. He lets them say their piece. You, you get me? He doesn't trample over them. Blah, 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 blah. And then he participates in a Socratic method in the arena of ideas. Are you getting this? And he's reasoning. Oh, by the way, time out. If you're a parent or a grandparent, stop just telling the kids what to believe. No, listen, that's good. What to believe is good, but it's only half the story. Why do we believe it? That's it. And when a kid or a young person starts to realize why, that's a game changer. When we just say what, 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 and we force it down there, that's not training a child. That's dictating to a child what to believe. And oh, yes, should we give them this? No one's saying that. Yes, give them the scriptures. But why? When it says Jesus was resurrected, why do you believe that? Do you know? Well, find it out. And then train up children in that way. I'm, I'm, I'm compelled to tell us about that. That's a soapbox moment for me. Good. All right. Somebody else is with me. <laughs> but it says here that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Yes. He understood that other people had other ideas. And so he would sit down with them. He wouldn't stand up over them. He'd sit down. They'd ask questions. They'd talk. And he was prepared. He was nimble in the scriptures, of course. And you're called to be nimble in the scriptures. Not that you have to know it all. You know one of the great things you can say when you're dialoguing with something, somebody and you don't know what to do? Say, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Don't fake it. That's authentic. And there's a great lesson in dialoguing, and not only dialogue with him, he then explained the scriptures. Don't tune out. Remember on the road to Emmaus when Jesus had that amazing uh, discipleship time or Bible study time with the, with the people on the road to Emmaus? The Bible says it's the only other time this word is used in the Greek. He opened up the scriptures to them. And remember what the Bible says about those people? Their hearts burned within them. You and I should be able to teach the scriptures, not that you have to be perfect, not that you have to be great. You, you know, one of the great disservices, in my opinion, of people who teach the Bible is making it boring. Now, I'm not talking about manipulative, uh, fake, phony stuff, but here's why the gospel, or we're not to make the gospel uh, boring, because it's not boring. It's the most majestic, beautiful, uh, wonderful thing uh, of all time. So here, he opens up the scriptures. It's that same word that was used on the road to Emmaus. And he explained them. And then, watch this. <laughs> he demonstrated the scriptures. I don't know how this worked out. 
Maybe Paul took uh, people down to the homeless ministry. I don't know. Maybe Paul saw people on the periphery and went out and grabbed them and pulled them in with the others and said, come on, you're welcome. Maybe that was the way he demonstrated. Maybe he got down and served somebody who was unlovable or unservable or, is that a word, or whatever. And the people looked and went, whoa, wait a minute. That's it. That's Christ-like love that he demonstrated. And he did it for three Sundays, it says, well, Saturdays, but these three Sabbaths, and then here he gives the uppercut. Ready? Here it comes. That the Christ had to suffer and rise, rise again. He told them there was a Christ, an anointed one, the Messiah. He told them this. And he told them that he had to rise again from the dead and said, this Jesus whom I preached to you, here comes the big uppercut, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded in a great multitude of the devout Greeks. And I love this. Don't you love this? I love this. And not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Throughout this, this portion of the second missionary journey, he always is keen to point out that the women believed. And I think that's beautiful. The gospel always elevates the women. Don't you believe the lies of the enemy or the media that it pushes women down? It elevates women. Everywhere the Bible's gone, the gospel's gone. And here he wants to point it out, and it's really great. It's really great. So here you have some devout Greeks. We're going to meet those Greeks in Acts chapter 20. Though even a couple of them will even be uh, talked about by name. But the Jews who weren't persuaded became envious. They became envious. Boy, religion, man. Watch religion. External, outward religion. Watch it. It's always envious. It's always jealous. There's no stability. There's no change on the inside. And it results in hatred and even murderous hate. I mean, you see it here in the Bible. Watch religion outward religion and set all the city in an uproar these people did as they come uh who were envious they come from the marketplace they gather a mob i mean it's mob mentality and there's this guy named jason where apparently these the workers of the lord paul and his team are staying and they sought to bring him out to the people but when they didn't find them watch this gets serious folks this gets serious They dragged Jason and some brothers to the rulers of the city crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Oh, to have, listen, don't you want that to be said, not just of us, but in this region, the church, that we turned the world upside down because we were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we went out and we engaged the culture and stayed on mission and spoke of the things of the Lord, and the world was turned upside down. It's not a pipe dream. It's normal Christianity. I want you to know that. It's normal Christianity. That's the way we should be growing and working. Now, I know it's hot. I know the baptism sheet's over there. But it needs to be over here. All right, good. All right. But listen, don't tune out. I know it's hot. But watch, this is like the core of what and why and how and what our agenda is during the day. What should we be doing and working towards? Well, setting up churches, turning the world upside down, all these sorts of things. And Jason 
7 has harbored these people. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Folks, what do you know if you know nothing else about the trial of Jesus himself? They said that he's calling himself a king in conflict with the Caesar. These people who are followers of Christ are receiving the same accusations. You get it? And Jesus actually said, hey, what do you think you're greater than your leader? You're going to be hated like I'm going to be hated. And this, the Roman world hated. The Roman world was cool if you kept the peace. But if you did a couple of things, you got out of line and disturbed the peace, that was a big no-no. And the second thing is you never challenged Caesar, right? So they make these accusations, but in a funny way, they're sort of right. (laughs) Because what would they be preaching? They would be preaching about the kingdom of God and that Jesus is going to be the ultimate king. So they make these threats. Jason's getting uh, his householder (laughs) drugged through the city. And some brethren to the rulers of the city were crying out. Those, verse 8, or no, 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 sorry. Still in verse 6. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting uh, to the decrees of Caesar. Here we go, verse 8. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The Roman world, man, funny stuff. Apparently, the Roman authorities said to Jason, you got to give a security deposit. We'll hold the deposit. But if you let these rabble-rousers back in here or continue to harbor them, we're going to take your money and worse. That's what that's all about. Isn't that fascinating? Boy, the Romans, they like to get at your money. They still do. I heard that. All right. So the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away. Apparently, they thought they were in jeopardy. So they sent them away by night to this place called Berea. You see it up there, don't we? Yes, we see it up there. And they go to Berea, and that's several miles away, a couple days' journey. And when they arrive, look, you're reading your Bible, and you're going, yes, I know this. They go to the synagogue of the Jews, and these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness. By the way, folks, you know what's a fascinating... I know you, you may or you may not do this. You want to bless yourself today. Go read the first two or three chapters of 1 Thessalonians today because it sort of fills in the rest of the story, what happened in Thessalonica, and it shows Paul and his team's heart for these beautiful people. So go read that. I think it would bless you. Well, anyway, they go over and they start again, and they go to Berea, and they said, these guys are fair-minded. These gals are fair-minded. Why? Why were they fair-minded? Because they received the word with readiness. This is the verse. Let me see if anybody's doing it. Or this is the tense. Hmm. Nobody doing it. Here's what they were talking about. You know how sitting on the edge of your seat, oh my goodness, what are you describing to us? And they were taking down what Paul was saying, and then they were looking in their Bibles. They were on the edges of their seat. That's what this means. And they were sober and awake and alert. That's what that means. I'm kidding. You folks are like that. You studied the scriptures here, and it's a real blessing. So they're... With readiness, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. There it is again. And we should be Bereans. Are you a Berean? 
You know what you should do when somebody teaches you out of the scriptures? You should check for yourself. And oh, by the way, you should be, and I should be, and we, just a daily little bit of studying. You don't have to be, you know, 75 hours a day, uh, but just studying consistently, daily, taking in the word, making, thing, making sure things are true. That's what a Berean is. And they were ready for it. They were on the edge of the seat. Get yourself a journal. Write notes during your teachings that you hear. Go back to them and study. Therefore, many of them believed. And when the Jews, verse 13, from Thessalonica, learned that the word of God was preached by Paul, they came here and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. It's so amazing. He not only has a heart for conversion, he has a heart for discipleship. Are you seeing this? Okay, I'm in danger, but I don't want to just leave these people in the lurch here. So I'm going to give these two wonderful brothers an assignment to stay here and to build this church up and to make it strong. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? So they're getting threatened. Paul needs to run out like he does almost time and again. And immediately the brothers uh, send him away, but they leave Paul and Silas. They had a heart for people. That's what pastors should do. Don't I'm not saying me or anything, I'm great or anything, but what should a pastor be? A shepherd who's, listen, uh, Chuck Smith said this, and this is amazing. This is so simple, but this is amazing. Your flock, pastors, should be the most loved in the city and the most well-fed. And you know, you could add to that, most cared for. Sometimes what does a shepherd have to do? They have to warn. They have to warn. They have to protect. It's not some weird thing like some shepherding movement weirdness. That's tell you who to marry. No, not that. I'm talking about when you know of some dangers. And so you got to do those sorts of things. And here you see the pastoral ministry of these wonderful guys, Silas and Timothy. And so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, get the picture. He's running for his life (laughs) through Europe. And he gets to Athens. And what do you know about Athens? Just yell it out. What do you know about Athens during the ancient times? What was Athens the center of? Idols. There's one thing. That's one biggie. Idols all throughout the city. Temples all throughout the city. Oh, Temples, you know, to the Bacchus, the wine god, and temples to the, the, the love goddess, and, you know, all the weird things that were going on there. Yes, idols. What's another thing that Athens, what? Intellectual. It was the thinking center of the modern, or excuse me, the ancient world. You ever heard of people like Aristotle, Socrates? We already talked about him a little bit. Those sorts of things. What was valuable to the people in Athens were ideas and thoughts, and it would sort of be like, um, you know, where uh, Cambridge and Oxford are in England, and also wherever uh, the city, you know, Boston, where Harvard is, you know, where they'd get together and think about things and debate things, and that was their deal. That's Athens. And Athens now, by the time Paul and his team get there, sort of diminishing in glory, but still the thinking center of the world. Get that? Okay, so now, right, 
Here's what a lot of Christians do now when they encounter different ideas. We do this. We yell at people. We post on Facebook, you're wrong, I'm right. And it rarely works, to be honest with you. Have you ever had anybody yelling on TV in the news get you to commit to changing your political party? It's senseless. Keep yelling, folks, because I'm not changing. I'm going to just do it biblically. Okay? So, but keep yelling. That's really great for your ratings. Great for you. That's all it is. It's a scam. And here, I want you to see something. He's walking into the intellectual capital of the world with ideas and thoughts that are completely the opposite of what Christians believe. How do I know? Because he names a few. He names Epicureans and Stoics. What was the goal of Epicureans? The goal of Epicureans was to live a peaceful life. And I don't mean uh, 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 eat, drink, and be merry like party type stuff, but they wanted to live a simple and pleasurable life. Pleasure was big to the Epicureans, and they didn't believe in things like resurrection. So when you died and things like that, your body and soul and everything was extinguished. Hmm, sounds a lot different than Christians. Because here you come along and you start saying, oh, hey, you know, the, the one that we follow was tortured, nailed to a cross, but it was glorious. And the reason it was glorious is because he won the victory and now comes into our life through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And oh, by the way, here's what our leader says. If you participate in his sufferings, you'll know him in deeper ways. And you now, look, am I, am I helping you to see the difference in philosophies? This is as different as you get. A stoic, on the other hand, was stoic. Here, you got it. And so they would say things like this or think things like this. We don't want to be bothered with things like love and emotion and joy. Here's what we want to do. Just sort of remove ourselves from all of that. And again, they had some different thoughts about the afterworld. And so you have, watch, he picks out, he talks about two different competing ideas or philosophies of life. By the way, time out. This is where he's going to encounter a idol or a structure that was dedicated to the unknown God. Do you, do you know this story? I'll read it here in a minute. I just want you to know that an agnostic and an atheist doesn't understand that they believe something, which means they're worshiping something, whether they believe it or not. Because where else would they get their beliefs? I mean, you talk to a lot of uh, atheists and you say, well, don't believe in God, da 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 uh, So, well, why don't you kill somebody? Well, of course, that's not right. And I want to do right and don't want to do wrong. Well, why do you believe that? Well, I believe that because God, no, not God, uh, we have a conscience. Well, oh, so you have a belief set. Oh, okay, you have a belief set. And what they fail to recognize is there's something in their heart that is seeking for and responding to, listen, responding to absolute truth. 
And that's their unknown God. And Paul knows all that. So he's got all these things, and I want you to see something here. I want you to see the way in which, watch, Paul engaged the culture. Because you and I are called to engage the culture. What if this row, or this section, and this section started by the power of the Holy Spirit engaging the culture in the way Paul did? By the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now let's see in here where he gets mad and tells them they're idiots. He doesn't. You know why he doesn't? Because he knows they're lost. And he cares for them. He cares for them even when they don't even know that they're supposed to care for themselves. Do you get it? That's Paul. But that's the Holy Spirit. So watch this. Real quick. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, listen, this is so funny. His team's not there yet, but he's so troubled and provoked when he sees all the idols. I mean, you walk around the town of Athens, you would see idols everywhere. And he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile workers or worshipers, but not just the synagogue. He worshiped also in the marketplace. Hit it there, Gabe. We have a picture of the marketplace in Athens. Now, look at this road, 39-33, that goes from here right through the middle of the town. That's the marketplace. It's the Agora or, yeah, Agora. And you would walk, you know, with arm in arm with your friends, and you would go down through there, and you would encounter people who had ideas, and you would talk about them. And, and what Paul and his team did went into the marketplace synagogue, marketplace, and they engaged the culture. Now, Paul went first because he couldn't stand it. He's torn, and he goes, and he talks with people daily who happen to be there. Certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does the babbler want to say? Do you know what one thing the Holy Spirit will do for you? You know what he'll do for you? He'll stop making you be a people pleaser so much. And the reason you're a people pleaser is because you idolize yourself. Sorry. I'm the ultimate people pleaser without the Lord in my life. I'll admit it. I'll put two hands up, and if I could put my toes up, I'd do that too. But the reason people are people pleaser is because you want to be liked. And God comes in and makes you stable and secure. So that you can tell people who don't even know they're lost, they're lost. And you can dialogue with them, and you can handle being called a babbler. What this means is, in the Athens culture is, you're an idiot. We know these highfalutin philosophies, and you're just a babbler. That's what's happening. But he doesn't let it deter him. The Holy Spirit does it for him. And others say to him, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because, watch this, here's the gospel. Many people criticize Paul here because they never gave the gospel. Well, it looks to me like he was giving the gospel. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. There it is, the gospel, the good news. Okay, and they took him and brought him to the era Pagas, if that's how you want to say it. I don't know. But here, I'm going to give you a picture. The Areopagus is somewhere up there. That's not it up there with the main columns. 
main columns, but here is where it was. And what was over here was an area that was for a council of people who were in Athens. Do we have that other photo too? There's a better picture in modern times. We still have the rock upon which it stands. In the Latin, it means Mars Hill. You ever heard of Mars Hill? Okay, same thing. And what would happen was this council would meet up there and they would decide things. Why, folks, time out. Where else has this happened? Stephen found himself in front of the Jewish ruling council and gave a defense of Christianity and preached. Now Paul finds himself, can you imagine? Paul finds himself in Athens and they asked him to go up on this big high hill and they weren't actually putting him on trial, probably, but they wanted to kick around the ideas. But I got to tell you, I mean, going in front of these smart people, you could get an inferiority complex, but not Paul. Why? You say, well, he was smart. I don't think that's the reason. I think he didn't get an inferiority complex because he had the Holy Spirit. So you go and you see it, and that's that. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens... Here's what he did. I perceive that in all things you're very religious. I want you to see something here. Paul is building bridges. Here's what a lot of Christians do. They destroy bridges. They knock them down before the, uh, the d discussion happens. Attack, attack, attack. Here Paul is with people. Now, he doesn't water it down. He's preaching the gospel, but he builds a bridge. He says, wow, you folks are pretty religious here. That's true. Isn't it true? They're religious. They're worshiping things. That's what people today with ideas that are different than yours and mine are doing. They're worshiping things. I perceive you're religious. That's what he says. And he goes on and he starts to continue making the bridge. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. Even they knew somewhere deep down in their heart that the gods that they had throughout the city, maybe they believed in them, but they weren't, listen, they weren't satisfying. The God of wine, the God of sex, the God of power, the God of governments, the God of blah, 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 and none of them satisfied. And so, boom, here you got this one. They knew deep down there must be one. I think that's the cry of many people's hearts. And so we build bridges. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, <laughs> can you believe he says this? Him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. By the way, again, if you go back to Stephen's account to the Jewish council, he makes this exact point. There's not a God that lives in a building who is made with hands. He's uncontainable that way. He's bigger than all that. He's not a little wooden idol or a stone idol. Okay, just hold on for one minute. We're almost done. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So here Paul starts out with the greatness of God and the creation ability or power. Then he moves on to the goodness of God. He gives to all life, 
breath, and all things. And he does do that. That's God's overarching grace. He gives rain to those who are good and those who are not good, so to speak. He gives grace and his goodness out to all people, not just his followers. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the earth. He's talking about God's government here, how, the, how God guides history and how uh, he has de- determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Remember, Epicureans, Stoics, they were more of this camp. There might be a God, but if that God is real, he wound up the world, set it down, and walked away. Which is so anti, uh, anti-Christian. Our God, we know, created the world and everything in it, the universes, but he also created you, and he didn't have to. And why he created you was for a love, a relationship, and communion. And Paul is saying that here. He's, he's marking the differences. So, uh, you go on. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your poets have said. Paul grabs in. He must have gone down to the library. Seriously. He quotes two, or some say three, poets right here from Greece. In the scriptures. He actually does it again in Titus. And he says, even your writers... They have ideas that originated with the real God. And that's this, that everything we are, the way we move, the way we breathe, everything, it's because of him. And your writers knew it. There There was a God that was in such a way. And also his offspring. You're also his offspring. And the Bible says that. If you know how to read the Bible, and all of you do, you know that each one of us are made in the image and likeness of God. Every person on earth deserves dignity and respect. Listen, dignity and respect, whether they're a Christian or not, every person, because they're made in the image and likeness of God. That's what Paul's saying. And he's saying, your poets wrote about it. So he goes on. It's amazing how he can adjust and he's flexible, and he takes where the people are in their life, and he builds bridges to them. So he goes on, and he says, uh, therefore, verse 29, since we are the offspring uh, of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. What a nice way of saying it. He didn't go, you stupid, and I know this sounds bad, I know, I know I'm a pastor, but he didn't say, you stupid idiots, How could you believe? You put them up on your mantle. You made them. How in the world could that be a God? He doesn't say that. I want you to see he was kind. And he says it in a kind way, but he says it truthfully. You can say hard things kind in a kind way. You can say things lovingly, kindly, but still be truthful. And he does it. And if you don't believe me, Let me give you, see me after the service, I'll give you five or six apologetic scriptures that talk about being, it says it right in the scriptures, I think we forget it, about being kind and gentle and graceful as we're uh, defending the faith. He says it time and time again in the New Testament. Well, anyway, here he goes and he says, 
This time of ignorance God overlooked. What a nice way of saying it. <laughs> okay, I think it's funny. But anyway, but, uh, but now commends all every, men everywhere to repent. Don't criticize Paul here, in my opinion. Some other brothers do. Here he says, repent, turn from your sins. Because he has appointed a day on which this one, the one you're yearning for, will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Now, I don't know about you. If I'm a thinker and a philosopher, and this nice young, well, I don't know if he's young, but anyway, this nice man has come, and he seems like he knows what he's talking, and there's this authority in the way he teaches, because the Holy Spirit, and he's wise, and he sort of, look, he sort of dangles the carrot out there. This man whom I'm preaching about. Now, what would you say next? Well, who is it? If you were a thinker, wouldn't you say that? Who is this man? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Oh, he died and he rose again. And look what he says. Watch this. He is appointed a day in which he judged the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. Which man, they would say? He has given assurance of this to all. How? By raising him from the dead. You go and look at Acts 2, 24 and 32 and Acts 10, 40 and 42. The resurrection of God is, or excuse me, of Christ by God is the stamp that he's the one that could be the judge. And by the way, Guys, gals, study the ministry or the function of Christ as judge. It's so beautiful to me and you too. It's not one to run from. It's one to embrace. Why? Because if God, through his son Jesus, is judge, all of life makes sense. We have a purpose. We know that all that we're doing here is going to be accounted for. And it will be accounted for. Well... He keeps going, and he says in 32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We'll hear you again on this matter. Some will mock you. You go down to the philosophy uh, uh, department, get an appointment with the students by the um, approval of the professor at one of these local colleges and start to talk to them. Some of them are going to mock you. But some of them are going to say, We'll hear you again on this matter. <laughs> So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined them and believed. And I, I, I laugh at this one. I, I, even some of my friends teach this, that Paul wasn't very successful here. Man, I'm jumping up and down when I read who got saved here. Because it says that one of the council members, one of the people who were part of the council, this guy uh, named Dionysus, he was an Arapagite. He was from the council. He got saved, and a woman named Damaris, who we know nothing else about, and others with them. Seems to me he was ultra successful. Jesus came for one and wants to bring one back, and one's important, and all heaven rejoices over this. I want to read you something to close as we're going to sing together. I want to read you to something to close. It's written by a fellow by the name of Dr. Daryl Bach. Uh, Dr. Bach is at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He writes this. Can you just hang on for one more minute? I'm sweating. I suspect you are too. But praise the Lord it wasn't hotter. Yesterday, I don't know if we could have done it, but we, we are, and we can do it. Listen to this. In some, in this speech or this teaching, Paul directly engages the current culture. Watch this. 
He does so with the attitude that although his argument challenges the way people are living, his message stresses the gospel as an invitation into a new life and seeks points of contact. Listen, are you listening to this? You're called to be person who shares the gospel and makes disciples. And here, this really smart guy, Dr. Daryl Bach, says you're called to give an invitation into a new life, listen, and seeks a point of contact with such desires as already exist in the culture. Do you understand people are anxious and nervous and they can't figure out why, and they want to belong and believe and answer the questions, where do I come from, and why am I here, and they get involved in all these philosophical things, and they're all searching for the unknown God. And right, and so here we are to engage the culture, is not to destroy bridges, but to build bridges and say, bring up, as you can intelligently discuss the scriptures and what they believe, Bring up the desire that you have. There's a desire within your heart to worship God. And you don't even know it. That's what you're feeling. And that's what Daryl Bach is saying that Paul has done. He's connected points of contact with uh, desires as already exist. And Paul knows his own message. How well do you know your message? Know it. If you don't know it, it's okay. Let's come together and we'll help you know it. And the mentality, what else does Paul know? Paul knows the mentality of the people he evangelizes. You want to get with, what's our current generation called? Generation what? Z. Is it Z? Okay, there you go, LBG, all those things. Or Gen Z. You want to know about them? Find out about them. Don't make fun of them. Don't say, oh, those kids, phones. Quit being so grumpy. Find out about what makes them tick and find the desires that you can connect with to deliver the gospel to them. Right. We're called to love. And Dr. Bach, not Spock, Listen, John, uh, Dr. Buck says this, too many Christians know their own message but understand far too little about how and why others think as they do. You understand why the Lord says be slow to speak and very quick to listen. This is it. The key to all these presentations of the gospel is a theology that sees God in his most basic roles as Paul proclaims them here. And he gives them all those things just to tell them that he's the creator and to, and to, and to build that bridge. It's just so important that he loves them. Okay, I'll finish with this. Another important observation is that despite being aggravated by all the idolatry he sees in Athens, I want you to catch this. This is, this is old people to a tree, tea in the Christian church. Paul manages to share the gospel with a generous but honest spirit. Could you say when you share the gospel with a young person or an LBGTQ person, could you say that you share with a generous, loving, kind, but honest spirit? 
Oh, good. The Paul of Romans 1, who speaks of the sad state of a society, is still able to love and connect with the society in Acts 17. And this is an important lesson. Sometimes we Christians, here it comes, here's the punchline, don't tune out, I know you're sweating. Christians are so angry at the state of our society that all that comes through is the anger and not the love we are to have for our neighbor. Man, shame on us. Wow. So Paul avoids that extreme. Let's, let's pray and uh, have these folks come up. What a powerful lesson. Lord, I just pray and think that in our pursuit of telling everybody the truth, we've brutalized them with it and not been loving. But also we could go to the other extreme, Lord. We could be loving and not tell people the truth. Help us to be people who engages the culture. Help us by filling us with your Holy Spirit to make us both loving and truthful, both bridge builders and honest. And Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you in a real and saving way, I pray they would come up and we could pray together. I pray if there's anybody here who has misrepresented you, and I, I certainly have, that we confess that now and say, Lord, flow in and through us. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we could be bold and loving and engage a culture in the way that we see you want us to do it. And I pray it in Jesus' name.